Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. A quick apology, because it's February and apparently we just can't get through a February without this happening. Um, the past week saw uh, saw a bunch of episodes YouTube into your uh, into your podcast feeds again, and this time it is not my fault. Uh, I didn't change anything. I didn't mess with any settings. I did nothing. So this is completely all some weirdness that happened with Podbean um, over the last week. They underwent a DDoS attack, uh, and there was a whole bunch of stuff that they were doing behind the scenes. I imagine it had something to do with that. They implemented some new security procedures. There were captures I had to do for a little while to log in. Um, but uh, I assume it had something to do with that. I have absolutely no proof that that is the case. I don't know how things work on the internet. I barely know how to upload episodes. So um, I apologize for that. Um, it was not uh, It was not my fault. <laughs> It's, I didn't do it this time, so um, I'm sorry that I'm sorry that that got forced upon you. Uh, it was unintentional, and I don't know how it happened. But uh, anyway, um, I hope you all enjoyed those episodes from two years ago. So, all right, not a whole lot going on this week. I know I talked a little bit a long time ago about how. When like when the pandemic started up and everything that I would that I would be open and honest and talk about, you know, anything that's going on with, um you know, just transparency and all of that, because that's how I want my relationship with the listeners to be. I want to be completely transparent with everything. Uh, and um, uh, I, I this is not anything bad. I don't have covid. I'm not I didn't contract it. I'm not dying. This is not the last episode because I'm about to die. Um. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, working as a as a um, COVID nineteen tester, uh, I had access to the to the first phase of the vaccine, so I got vaccinated, and um, yay! That that was just a nice load off my mind. So uh, uh, I just wanted to share that. If you if you don't follow me on Twitter, I talked about it on Twitter a little while ago, but I don't think I ever talked about it on the show. But um, I I am vaccinated. Uh, if you are eligible to be vaccinated as, or as soon as you are eligible to be vaccinated, please go and get vaccinated. In the meantime, stay inside as much as you can. Uh, please wear a mask or even two masks uh, when you go uh, out. Keep your distance from everybody. The mask has to cover your nose and your mouth. If it doesn't do that, you might as well not be wearing a mask because you're not doing anybody any good. All right, this has gone on for three minutes. Let's go ahead and get on with the episode. My brother remained in his room. He called out to me in a voice I hardly recognized that he was very busy and would like his meals brought to his door and left there, and I gave the order to the servants. From that day, it seemed as if the arbitrary conception we call time had been annihilated for me. I lived in an ever-present sense of horror, going through the routine of the house mechanically and only speaking a few necessary words to the servants. Now and then I went out and paced the streets for an hour or two, and came home again, but whether I were without or within, my spirit delayed before the closed door of the upper room, and, shuddering, waited for it to open. I have said that I scarcely reckoned time, but I suppose it must have been a fortnight after Dr. Haberden's visit that I came home from my stroll a little refreshed and lightened. The air was sweet and pleasant, 
and the hazy form of green leaves floating cloud-like in the square and the smell of blossoms had charmed my senses, and I felt happier and walked more briskly. As I delayed a moment at the verge of the pavement, waiting for a van to pass by before crossing over to the house, I happened to look up at the windows, and instantly there was the rush and swirl of deep cold waters in my ears, and my heart leapt up and fell down, down as into a deep hollow, and I was amazed with a dread and terror without form or shape. I stretched out a hand blindly through folds of thick darkness from the black and shadowy valley and held myself from falling while the stones beneath my feet rocked and swayed and tilted and the sense of solid things seemed to sink away from under me. I had glanced up at the window of my brother's study and at that moment the blind was drawn aside and something that had life stared out into the world. Nay, I cannot say I saw a face or any human likeness. A living thing, two eyes of burning flame glared at me, and they were in the midst of something as formless as my fear, the symbol and presence of all evil and all hideous corruption. I stood shuddering and quaking as with the grip of ague, sick with unspeakable agonies of fear and loathing, and for five minutes I could not summon force or motion to my limbs. When I was within the door, I ran up the stairs to my brother's room and knocked. "'Francis! Francis!' I cried. "'For heaven's sake, answer me! What is the horrible thing in your room? Cast it out, Francis! Cast it from you!' I heard a noise as of feet shuffling slowly and awkwardly, and a choking, gurgling sound, as if someone was struggling to find utterance and then the noise of a voice, broken and stifled, and words that I could scarcely understand. "'There's nothing here,' the voice said. "'Pray, do not disturb me. I am not very well today.' I turned away, horrified and yet helpless. I could do nothing, and I wondered why Francis had lied to me, for I had seen the appearance beyond the glass too plainly to be deceived, though it was but the sight of a moment and I sat still, conscious that there had been something else, something I had seen in the first flash of terror before those burning eyes had looked at me. Suddenly I remembered. As I lifted my face, the blind was being drawn back, and I had had an instant's glance of the thing that was moving it, and in my recollection I knew that a hideous image was engraved forever on my brain. It was not a hand, there were no fingers that held the blind, but a black stump pushed it aside. The moldering outline and the clumsy movement as of a beast's paw had glowed into my senses before the darkling waves of terror had overwhelmed me as I went down quick into the pit. My mind was aghast at the thought of this, and of the awful presence that dwelt with my brother in his room. I went to his door and cried to him again, but no answer came. That night, one of the servants came up to me and told me in a whisper that for three days food had been regularly placed at the door and left untouched. The maid had knocked, but had received no answer. She had heard the noise of shuffling feet that I had noticed. Day after day went by, and still my brother's meals were brought to his door and left untouched, and though I knocked and called again and again, I could get no answer. The servants began to talk to me, it appeared they were as alarmed as I. 
The cook said that when my brother first shut himself up in his room, she used to hear him come out at night and go about the house. And once, she said, the hall door had opened and closed again, but for several nights she had heard no sound. The climax came at last. It was in the dusk of the evening, and I was sitting in the darkening, dreary room when a terrible shriek jarred and rang harshly out of the silence, and I heard a frightened scurry of feet dashing down the stairs. I waited, and the servant-maid staggered into the room and faced me, white and trembling. "'Oh, Miss Helen,' she whispered. "'Oh, for the Lord's sake, Miss Helen, what has happened? Look at my hand, Miss. Look at that hand!' I drew her to the window and saw there was a black, wet stain upon her hand. "'I do not understand you,' I said. "'Will you explain to me?' Oh, "'I was doing your room just now,' she began. Oh, "'I was turning down the bedclothes, and all of a sudden there was something fell upon my hand, wet, and I looked up, and the ceiling was black and dripping on me.' I looked hard at her and bit my lip. "'Come with me,' I said. "'Bring your candle with you.' The room I slept in was beneath my brother's, and as I went in, I felt I was trembling. I looked up at the ceiling and saw a patch all black and wet and a dew of black drops upon it and a pool of horrible liquor soaking into the white bedclothes. I ran upstairs and knocked loudly. "'Oh, Francis! Francis, my dear brother!' I cried. "'What has happened to you?' And I listened. There was a sound of choking and a noise like water bubbling and regurgitating, but nothing else, and I called louder, but no answer came. In spite of what Dr. Haberdin had said, I went to him, and with tears streaming down my cheeks, I told him of all that had happened, and he listened to me with a face set hard and grim. "'For your father's sake,' he said at last, "'I will go with you, though I can do nothing.' We went out together. The streets were dark and silent, and heavy with heat and a drought of many weeks." I saw the doctor's face, white under the gas lamps, and when we reached the house, his hand was shaking. We did not hesitate, but went upstairs directly. I held the lamp, and he called out in a loud, determined voice, "'Mr. Lester, do you hear me? I insist on seeing you. Answer me at once.' There was no answer, but we both heard that choking noise I have mentioned. "'Mr. Lester, I am waiting for you. Open the door this instant, or I shall break it down.' and he called a third time, in a voice that rang and echoed from the walls, "'Mr. Lester, for the last time I order you to open the door.' "'Ah,' he said after a pause of heavy silence, "'we are wasting time here. Will you be so kind as to get me a poker or something of the kind?' I ran into a little room at the back where odd articles were kept, and found a heavy ats-like tool that I thought might serve the doctor's purpose." "'Very good,' he said. "'That will do, I dare say.' "'I give you notice, Mr. Lester,' he cried loudly at the keyhole, "'that I am now about to break into your room.' Then I heard the wrench of the adze, and the woodwork split and cracked under it, and with a loud crash the door suddenly burst open, and for a moment we stared back aghast at a fearful screaming cry. No human voice, but as the roar of a monster that burst forth inarticulate and struck at us out of the darkness.' "'Hold the lamp,' said the doctor, and we went in and glanced quickly round the room. "'There it is,' said Dr. Haberden, drawing a quick breath. "'Look, in that corner.' I looked, and a pang of horror seized my heart as with a white-hot iron. There, upon the floor, 
was a dark and putrid mass, seething with corruption and hideous rottenness, neither liquid nor solid, but melting and changing before our eyes and bubbling with unctuous oily bubbles like boiling pitch. And out of the midst of it shone two burning points like eyes, and I saw a writhing and stirring as of limbs, and something moved and lifted up that might have been an arm. The doctor took a step forward and raised the iron bar and struck at the burning points and drove in the weapon and struck again and again in a fury of loathing. At last, the thing was quiet. A week or two later, when I had to some extent recovered from the terrible shock, Dr. Haberden came to see me. I have sold my practice, he began, and tomorrow I am sailing on a long voyage. I do not know whether I shall ever return to England. In all probability I shall buy a little land in California and settle there for the remainder of my life. I have brought you this packet which you may open and read when you feel you are able to do so. It contains the report of Dr. Chambers on what I submitted to him. Goodbye, Miss Lester. Goodbye. When he was gone, I opened the envelope. I could not wait, and proceeded to read the papers within. Here is the manuscript, and if you will allow me, I will read you the astounding story it contains. My dear Haberden, the letter began, I have delayed inexcusably in answering your questions as to the white substance you sent me. To tell you the truth, I have hesitated for some time as to what course I should adopt, for there is a bigotry and an orthodox standard in physical science as in theology, and I knew that if I told you the truth I should offend rooted prejudices which I once held dear myself. However, I have determined to be plain with you, and first I must enter into a short personal explanation. You have known me, Haberden, for many years as a scientific man. You and I have often talked of our profession together, and discussed the hopeless gulf that opens before the feet of those who think to attain to truth by any means whatsoever, except the beaten way of experiment and observation, in the sphere of material things. I remember the scorn with which you have spoken to me of men of science who have dabbled a little in the unseen, and have timidly hinted that perhaps the senses are not, after all, the eternal, impenetrable bounds of all knowledge." the everlasting walls beyond which no human being has ever passed. We have laughed together heartily, and I think justly, at the occult follies of the day, disguised under various names, the mesmerisms, spiritualisms, materializations, theosophies, all the rabble rant of imposture with their machinery of poor tricks and feeble conjuring, the true back-parlor magic of shabby London streets. Yet in spite of what I have said, I must confess to you that I am no materialist, taking the word, of course, in its usual signification. It is now many years since I have convinced myself, a skeptic, remember, that the old ironbound theory is utterly and entirely false. Perhaps this confession will not wound you so sharply as it would have done twenty years ago, for I think you cannot have failed to notice that for some time hypotheses have been advanced by men of pure science which are nothing less than transcendental, and I suspect that most modern chemists and biologists of repute would not hesitate to subscribe the dictum of the old schoolman, omnia exunt in mysterium, which means, I take it, that every branch of human knowledge, if traced up to its source and final principles, vanishes into mystery. I need not trouble you now with a detailed account of the painful steps which led me to my conclusion. A few simple experiments suggested a doubt as to my then standpoint, and a train of thought that arose from circumstances comparatively trifling brought me far. My old conception of the universe has been swept away, 
and I stand in a world that seems as strange and awful to me as the endless waves of the ocean seen for the first time, shining from a peak in Darien. Now I know that the walls of sense that seem so impenetrable, that seem to loom up above the heavens and to be founded below the depths, and to shut us in forevermore, are no such everlasting impossible barriers as we fancied, but thinnest and most airy veils that melt away before the seeker, and dissolve as the early mist of the morning about the brooks. I know that you never adopted the extreme materialistic position. You did not go about trying to prove a universal negative, for your logical sense withheld you from that crowning absurdity. Yet I am sure that you will find all that I am saying strange and repellent to your habit of thought. Yet, Habedin, what I tell you is the truth. Nay, to adopt our common language, the sole and scientific truth verified by experience— and the universe is verily more splendid and more awful than we used to dream. The whole universe, my friend, is a tremendous sacrament, a mystic, ineffable force and energy, veiled by an outward form of matter, and man and the sun and the other stars and the flower of the grass and the crystal in the test-tube are each and every one as spiritual, as material, and subject to an inner working. You will perhaps wonder, Haberden, whence all this tends— but I think a little thought will make it clear. You will understand that from such a standpoint, the whole view of things is changed, and what we thought incredible and absurd may be possible enough. In short, we must look at legend and belief with other eyes, and be prepared to accept tales that had become mere fables. Indeed, this is no such great demand. After all, modern science will concede as much in a hypocritical manner. You must not, it is true, believe in witchcraft, but you may credit hypnotism. Ghosts are out of date, but there is a good deal to be said for the theory of telepathy. Give a superstition a Greek name and believe in it should almost be a proverb. So much for my personal explanation. You sent me, Habedin, a file, stoppered and sealed, containing a small quantity of a flaky white powder obtained from a chemist who has been dispensing it to one of your patients. I am not surprised to hear that this powder refused to yield any results to your analysis— it is a substance which was known to a few many hundred years ago, but which I never expected to have submitted to me from the shop of a modern apothecary. There seems no reason to doubt the truth of the man's tale. He has no doubt got, as he says, the rather uncommon salt he prescribed from the wholesale chemists, and it has probably remained on his shelf for twenty years, or perhaps longer. Here, what we call chance and coincidence began to work. During all these years, the salt in the bottle was exposed to certain recurring variations of temperature— variations probably ranging from forty degrees to eighty degrees, and, as it happens, such changes, recurring year after year at irregular intervals and with varying degrees of intensity and duration, have constituted a process, and a process so complicated and so delicate that I question whether modern scientific apparatus directed with the utmost precision could produce the same result. The white powder you sent me is something very different from the drug you prescribed— it is the powder from which the wine of the Sabbath, the Vinum Sabbati, was prepared. No doubt you have read of the witch's Sabbath, and have laughed at the tales which terrified our ancestors, the black cats and the broomsticks and dooms pronounced against some old woman's cow. Since I have known the truth, I have often reflected that it is on the whole a happy thing that such burlesque as this is believed, for it serves to conceal much that it is better should not be known generally.' However, if you care to read the appendix to Payne Knight's monograph, you will find that the true Sabbath was something very different, though the writer has very nicely refrained from printing all he knew. 
The secrets of the true Sabbath were the secrets of remote times surviving into the Middle Ages, secrets of an evil science which existed long before Aryan man entered Europe. Men and women, seduced from their homes on specious pretenses, were met by beings well qualified to assume, as they did assume, the part of devils, and taken by their guides to some desolate and lonely place known to the initiate by long tradition and unknown to all else. Perhaps it was a cave in some bare and windswept hill, perhaps some inmost recess of a great forest, and there the Sabbath was held. There, in the blackest hour of night, the Vinum Sabbati was prepared, and this evil grail was poured forth and offered to the neophytes, and they partook of an infernal sacrament, Sumentis Calicum Principius Inferorum, as an old author well expresses it, and suddenly each one that had drunk found himself attended by a companion, a shape of glamour and unearthly allurement, beckoning him apart to share in joys more exquisite, more piercing than the thrill of any dream, to the consummation of the marriage of the Sabbath. It is hard to write of such things as these, and chiefly because that shape that allured with loveliness was no hallucination, but, awful as it is to express, the man himself. By the power of that Sabbath wine, a few grains of white powder thrown into a glass of water, the house of life was riven asunder, and the human trinity dissolved, and the worm which never dies, that which lies sleeping within us all, was made tangible and an external thing, and clothed with a garment of flesh. And then, in the hour of midnight, the primal fall was repeated and represented, and the awful thing veiled in the mythos of the tree in the garden was done anew. Such was the nuptiae sabbatae. I prefer to say no more. You, Haberden, know as well as I do that the most trivial laws of life are not to be broken with impunity, and for so terrible an act as this, in which the very inmost place of the temple was broken open and defiled, a terrible vengeance followed. What began with corruption ended also with corruption. Underneath is the following in Dr. Haberden's handwriting. The whole of the above is unfortunately strictly and entirely true. Your brother confessed all to me on that morning when I saw him in his room. My attention was first attracted to the bandaged hand, and I forced him to show it to me. What I saw made me, a medical man of many years' standing, grow sick with loathing, and the story I was forced to listen to was infinitely more frightful than I could have believed possible. It has tempted me to doubt the eternal goodness which can permit nature to offer such hideous possibilities, and if you had not with your own eyes seen the end, I should have said to you, disbelieve it all. I have not, I think, many more weeks to live, but you are young and may forget all of this. Joseph Haberden, M.D. In the course of two or three months, I heard that Dr. Haberden had died at sea, shortly after the ship left England. Miss Lester ceased speaking and looked pathetically at Dyson, who could not refrain from exhibiting some symptoms of uneasiness. He stuttered out some broken phrases, expressive of his deep interest in her extraordinary history, and then said with a better grace, "'But pardon me, Miss Lester. I understood you were in some difficulty. You were kind enough to ask me to assist you in some way.' "'Ah,' she said, "'I had forgotten that. My own present trouble seems of such little consequence in comparison with what I have told you. But as you are so good to me, I will go on. You will scarcely believe it, but—' I found that certain persons suspected, 
or rather pretended to suspect that I had murdered my brother. These persons were relatives of mine, and their motives were extremely sordid ones, but I actually found myself subject to the shameful indignity of being watched. Yes, sir, my steps were dogged when I went abroad, and at home I found myself exposed to constant, if artful, observation. With my high spirit, this was more than I could brook, and I resolved to set my wits to work and elude the persons who were shadowing me. I was so fortunate as to succeed. I assumed this disguise, and for some time have lain snug and unsuspected. But of late, I have reason to believe that the pursuer is on my track. Unless I am greatly deceived, I saw yesterday the detective who is charged with the odious duty of observing my movements. You, sir, are watchful and keen-sighted. Tell me, did you see anyone lurking about this evening? I hardly think so, said Dyson, but perhaps you would give me some description of the detective in question. Uh, certainly. He is a youngish man, dark, with dark whiskers. He has adopted spectacles of large size in the hope of disguising himself effectually, but he cannot disguise his uneasy manner and the quick nervous glances he casts to right and left. This piece of description was the last straw for the unhappy Dyson, who was foaming with impatience to get out of the house and would gladly have sworn eighteenth-century oaths if propriety had not frowned on such a course. "'Excuse me, Miss Lester,' he said with cold politeness. "'I cannot assist you.' "'Ah,' oh, she said sadly, "'I have offended you in some way. Tell me what I have done, and I will ask you to forgive me.' "'You are mistaken,' said Dyson, grabbing his hat, but speaking with some difficulty. "'You have done nothing. But, as I say, I cannot help you. Perhaps,' he added with some tinge of sarcasm, "'My friend Russell might be of service.' "'Thank you,' she replied. "'I will try him.' And the lady went off into a shriek of laughter, which filled up Mr. Dyson's cup of scandal and confusion. He left the house shortly afterwards, and had the peculiar delight of a five-mile walk through streets which slowly changed from black to grey, and from grey to shining passages of glory for the sun to brighten. Here and there he met or overtook strayed revelers, but he reflected that no one could have spent the night in a more futile fashion than himself, and when he reached his home he had made resolves for reformation. He decided that he would abjure all Milesian and Arabian methods of entertainment and subscribe to Moody's for a regular supply of mild and innocuous romance. And that is the end of the novel of the White Powder. We have three more segments, and then we're done. Uh, I think it's just going to be two more weeks, and then we'll be done. Um, and then I have to find something else to read, because long form gets me in this in this mindset of I, I'm all set up for the next long while, and I don't think about anything, and then th the story ends, and I'm like, oh no, now what do I do? Hmm. Uh, anyway, um. Thank you to those of you who support me on Patreon. Ryan Patrick, thank you so much. Matthias Hansen, uh, thank you. Alder Riley, I'm very thankful to you. Mark Vincent, thank you. Eric Braun, thank you so much. Chris Cowley, thank you for your support. Uh, if you want to become a patron uh, on Patreon, you can find me at patreon.com slash Podcast. I have a $1, $3, and $10 tier. Uh, $3 gets you a thank you on the show. $10 Get you access to a bonus feed, which uh, contains um, bi-monthly readings of uh, a novel that I'm working on. And uh, it's been 
it's been coming along. It's been clicking along. I've been, I'm, I'm really excited with how it's, with how it's going. I'm really happy with it. Um, I think that'll about do it for this week. I certainly hope that you all have a wonderful week. Um, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time. Da, 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 da. Here's the bloops. Ah, this chair I'm sitting in does not have a backing for it. And the seat is like super uncomfortable. So I'm sitting on a pillow on the seat and I've grabbed a pillow and I'm putting it behind as something for my back. Yeah. And hopefully that will be better. Since I have known the truth, I have often reflected that it is on the whole a happy thing that such burlesque as this is believed, for it serves to conceal much that it is... For it serves to conceal much that it... No, that it is better should not be known generally. Wow, that's an extremely convoluted sentence.